Welcome to Conversations with Alan Wolper, a half hour featuring unique personalities whose ideas are on the cutting edge. Alan Wolper is an award-winning journalist and a professor at Rutgers Newark. And now, Conversations with Alan Wolper. Lisa Bloom is an activist attorney who enjoys trying cases on the cutting edge. Her clients include high-profile celebrities like actress Lindsay Lohan's controversial father and an alleged sexual abuse victim of the Catholic Church. She's the author of Swagger, a primer on the problems of raising boys, and an analyst for Avo.com, a legal website. She's made numerous appearances on network television discussing legal issues. Lisa, how would you define yourself after all that? Well, I do a lot of different things all at the same time. Uh, The main use of my time is running my law firm, the Bloom Firm in Los Angeles, which is a general practice law firm, family, civil, business, media cases. I also write books, which is one of my great loves. And I do a lot of television uh, just about every day. I'm on one show or another talking about the high-profile trials in America. I saw you with Lindsay Lohan's father. That was that was quite controversial. Um, why do you take there are certain I would assume you take certain kinds of clients. What attracts them to you or you to them? Well, I, I take all kinds of clients. Uh, at, I have a small boutique law firm. I get many, many requests for assistance. We can only take a small number of them. And one thing all of my clients have in common is that they're people I like. You know, life is short, and I don't like to represent people who are difficult to deal with, uh, who aren't appreciative, who don't follow their attorney's advice. And uh, Michael Lohan has been through a lot in his life, but there's no question that this is a father who loves his daughter, Lindsay. And at the time I represented him, she was really on the brink. I mean, the question was, you know, was he going to wake up one day and get a phone call that she had died? I mean, it was really that bad. She was constantly uh, being photographed in situations that were very dangerous for her. And so he came to me and said, what can I do? I mean, after all, she was a young adult at that time in her early 20s. Uh, You know, it's not like a father of a minor where he could control her. And this is the problem that many adults have in America. What do you do if you have an adult child who's a substance abuse addict? And so we walked through what the legal options were. I mean, he, he wanted could, to be a conservative, didn't he? Well, we, we considered that. Could he get a conservatorship over her? And when I looked into it, the answer was probably not because she was still capable of managing her own affairs. Even if you can do that badly, uh, you're still entitled to manage your own affairs if you're an adult. It has to, it's a very, very tough standard to meet. But what we did have going for us was that she was on uh, parole, probation rather, probation at the time for one of her drug offenses which means she was under court supervision. And when I looked at the terms of probation, they were pretty light. So she just had to check in once in a while. She wasn't subject to random searches. Uh, the police didn't come to her home to check up on her. She didn't have any drug and alcohol testing that she was subjected to at that point. So I wrote a letter on Michael's behalf to the court and asked for more restrictions on her probation. And the court granted those. And that's when we began to see with Lindsay all of the alcohol and drug testing, the random searches that the police could do of her home, just as they do for many other addicts who are on probation. And that really turned things around for her. And, you know, She's still uh, got her challenges, as all addicts do, but she's now out there working. Uh, She's gotten some jobs. She's been on Saturday Night Live. She's got a movie coming up. And so things are looking a lot better for her. And I think Michael's presence in her life and giving her the kind of tough love that he's given her has really helped her. So he is in her life right now. 
you know, as of today, I, I don't know. I haven't spoken to him for a while, but uh, in general, yes, he is. And you know, and they have a they have a relationship that's got its ups and downs, uh, but in general, he is, and he's there for her, and he loves her very much. Why did he come to you? I think he came to me because he knew that I understand the media. You know, I hosted my own show on Court TV for eight years. I've been a legal analyst on CNN, CBS. Uh, I was on the Today Show three times this week. You know, so I'm constantly in the media, and I understand the media in a way that very few attorneys do. Um, you know, most of us are taught in law school that you never talk to the media when you're involved in a case, and that's the end, period. Well, that's not really practical in today's environment. If you're in a high-profile situation, sometimes it is better to talk to the media if you have a controlled statement, uh, if you do certain kinds of interviews. So I understand the difference between a live interview, a taped interview, between tabloids and more legitimate press, radio, television, and I can help somebody like Michael Lohan navigate through that. And I do that for a lot of clients, um, and I think it ultimately does help them. Michael Lohan uh, had a tough time during that period. Well, and, and I, he and did what I saw about, but you were having a tough time just as well as saying, why are you, why are you representing that guy? Oh, I didn't have a tough time I with that. I felt that. No? no, I didn't have a tough time with that. You know, I don't put my finger up to the wind and take a, a poll as to what people think I should do. Uh, I make my decisions based on what the facts are and what I think is right. And, you know, I'm not a follower, so I don't look to see what everybody else is doing and then try to do that as well. That's never been something that's interesting to me. Um, you know, I looked at Michael Lohan and I saw, yeah, this is a guy who's had some problems in his life, but you don't have to be a perfect parent to want to put yourself out there to protect your child. And a lot of people are like Michael Lohan. They've made mistakes in their lives, but they're still entitled to care about their children and to try to step up. And, you know, in Michael's case, maybe even more so because he's also an addict and he had been clean and sober for six years at the time that I came in to represent him. And, you know, sobriety and overcoming addiction are a big part of his life. So he felt that he really had something to offer Lindsay to help her. And I say, yeah, get back in your child's life and help them. I think that's a good thing for parents to do. And you were a single parent for a long time, actually. And you have a daughter mm-hmm. and a son. That's true. That did very well. And uh, that you understand, I assume, just how difficult it is to uh, have a relationship with a son and a daughter, especially someone like you who's running around all the time. Well, I, I, I'm very lucky. I did raise my kids primarily as a single mom, I'm very close with both of my children. They're now 23 and 21. My daughter's a law student. My son's a college student. And, uh, you know, it was the three of us against the world, really. They didn't, in New York City. No. In New York City, with me working several jobs at the same time. Um, but, you know, my, I'm very blessed with wonderful children who are good people. Um, sometimes I say they're my best work, but maybe that's uh, unfairly taking credit for the choices that they've made. They've made good choices in their lives. They're good people. They're kind. They're intelligent. Um, they make their way in the world with a lot of grace, and I'm very proud of them both. Why did you write The Swagger, a book about boys? I know. I was once once a long time ago. You were? I was. I skipped a (laughs) few grades. How'd that go for you? (laughs) Um, I wrote Swagger because I had first written a book called Think, which is a book for women and girls about how our tabloid media reality show culture is dumbing down women and girls and what we can do to push back and reclaim our brains. Issues involving women and girls had always jumped out at me. But I was less aware of what's going on with boys, and I do a lot of speaking events all over the country. And as I did that for my book, Think, parents would approach me and say, what about boys? 
And parent after parent would ask me this question. My son is failing out of school. Uh, my son is obsessed with rap music, and I hate the values in rap music. Uh, my son has just been arrested. Is it my fault? What am I doing wrong? And I began to see that there were certain problems that were consistent with regard to raising boys. And so I looked into it more, and that's why I wrote the book Swagger. That's the voice of Lisa Bloom, the author of Swagger, a book on the problems of raising boys. A lawyer committed to civil liberties and an analyst for Avo.com, a legal website, as you were saying. So I began to look into this issue of what's going on with American boys. And I have to tell you, I was really shocked at what I found that's getting very little attention in the media. Uh, our boys, for example, are being hammered in school. Girls are outperforming boys now in every grade, in every subject. Girls are graduating college in greater numbers uh, with better grades. Uh, young women in every urban uh, city across America, is our, our young women are getting better jobs at higher pay. And so boys and young men are really being left behind. Boys have a much lower literacy rate today than their fathers did a generation ago. So what's going on here? Why are boys falling behind? You know, that's that's the subject of the first part of my book and all of the consequences to them, the consequences of a culture that gives them all the wrong messages about manhood, that being a man, for example, equates with violence, especially gun violence. That's what you see in every video game, every television and movie uh, show that they like, and especially in rap and hip hop music, where the, the majority of the most popular rap and hip hop music celebrates violence, rape, illegal drug use. I mean, all the things that parents are trying to keep their sons away from. So the first half of the book is a real wake-up call to parents about what's going on in the world our boys inhabit right now, which is so different than the world that we inhabited when we were kids. And the second half of the book is a guide for parents. What parents can do, mostly free things that parents can do or very low-cost things to keep their boys on track. And that's the 10 rules that I talk about in the book. And at the very end of the book is an appendix, Books Boys Love, that I compiled because so many boys I spoke to said, I hate reading. And I like Mike Lubica. <laughs> and I said, it's not possible that you could hate reading. There are so many wonderful children's books out there. So I talked to boys and parents and librarians and compiled this long list at the end of my book. I think it's 12 pages long, broken down by age group of books that boys really do love. So we can give boys these books and connect them with reading and literacy, which is so important to their future. You know, it's uh, you mentioned television quite a bit, and you constantly talk about television. You're on television, and and you want to keep, keep people away from television. That's true. But aside from that, <laughs> what they're doing, their faces are flat up against another screen called, you know, uh, we had somebody on our show whose name was uh, Steve Rubell who called people who did that screen suckers. <laughs> well, it's very important that we have balance in our life with all the different devices, and the American Academy of Pediatrics says that children under two should have no screen time at all, no devices, TV time no iPads, no screens of any kind, oh. no iPads, no TV, no video games, no DVDs, nothing, no screens for children under two. For children two and up, uh, it's still quite dangerous to them. And I, I have a chapter in my book, Swagger, about this. You know, I'm sorry that this is the news because as a parent, I get how pleasant it is to pop your kid down in front of a video and then you can breathe for, you know, an hour and a half. I get that. And I did that with my kids. But the social science is overwhelming that the younger children are and when they're subjected to screens, it slows down their brain development. 
It actually slows it down. And children who have a lot of screen time at a young age do poorly in school all throughout school. So if they have a lot of screen time as a three-year-old and they're suffering in school as a 12-year-old, very few people connect that. But there is a very strong uh, connection in the science there. So we need to keep them away from the screens. They need to have human communication, actually oh talking God, to a human being. Oh, my God, you're one of those being. people who actually believe that a person <laughs> should talk to a person instead of a machine talking and to a machine. even other children. children Shame on you. Children, especially talking to older children, is great for their brain development. Children playing with blocks and anything that they can manipulate with their hands, of coloring, and, of course, reading books of all kinds. I love the little vinyl books that they can take but looks, in and the you bathtub. tweet, you have a Facebook, you do yes. all those kinds of things as well. Yeah, but I'm not a two-year-old. Right. <laughs> so I'm talking about children and keeping them away from it. But look, as adults, we have to be good role models for our kids. We can't be on it all night and tell them to get off of it. So I'm on, but then I'm off, you know, and I'm running around the world doing my thing. I read about a book a week. I read the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times every morning. You know, I try to live what I preach. I think our brains are very important. What we put in our brains matters. And that's really probably the most important message of both of my books. And you're the daughter of Gloria Allred, one of the country's most renowned activist attorneys. And I'm going to read a quote that you had in your book. I thought it was great. She quoted Eleanor Roosevelt saying, great minds discuss ideas, average minds discuss events, and small minds discuss people. Mm. What did she mean by that? And why did she keep hammering that at you? Because so much of the discussion in this country is about people, right? Does Snooki have a baby bump? Uh, Is Kim Kardashian married this week? I mean, that is really the lowest level of human discourse. (laughs) Right. And we've, we've all become absorbed by this very low level of discourse. You know, a much better, more elevating topic is events, and best of all is ideas. And so when I was growing up around the dinner table, we would talk about ideas. Right. And, and that's just how I grew up. That's how I thought the world was. And I've been dismayed over the last generation to see in America we, the rise of tabloid media, for example, which most of us just sort of assume the way it is now is the way it always has been. But it's not so. 20 times as many American women read tabloids as real news today. So that if you walk down the aisle of a plane, for example, as I do all the time, you'll see that about two-thirds of the women on the plane are reading tabloids. Well, tabloid is some good journalism. Pouring journals, right? over them. They do? Like what? Oh, a lot of stories are broken by tabloids. Yeah, in fact, but that's one of the because best... they break so many stories that aren't true. Eventually, they, they yeah, break no, some no, that no. are true. No, no. Some, some, um, some publications like the National Enquirer have some of the best legal minds you'd ever find anywhere because they don't want to be sued. They don't want to lose. They don't mind being sued. They just don't want to lose. Well, I don't agree with that. You know, and I, I talk about that in my book, Think, because I personally have known the facts and a lot of the stories that get covered in the tabloids of representing someone like Michael Lohan, for example. And I talk in the book about him, that there was an inter- internet lie that was spread about him. And uh, it eventually was revealed to be a complete hoax by the person who started it. It was picked up and reported by dozens and dozens of tabloids, and not a single one retracted it even after it was admitted to be a lie. In many cases where I represent a client because who's in he the was, media... Because he was public, a public figure, perhaps, and it Because was they just didn't want to bother with it. And they figured he's not going to sue us, and he didn't want to sue them. And they know that. They know that most celebrities are not going to take the time to sue them. That just amplifies the lie. Now everybody's reporting on the story about the lie. And so it's not worth it to them. I've been involved in many cases representing celebrities where they don't even call us for our side of things. They just report on one side. Um, so I disagree that tabloid media is good, good journalism. I think you know once in a while. No, wait, wait, wait! I don't say it's tabloid 
media is good journalism okay. as a general, you know, just but there are general, some good stories. But there's some good stories. I want to tell everybody they're listening to Conversations with Alan Wolper on WBGO 88.3 and WBGO.org. And I guess is lawyer, author, civil libertarian, and she takes that seriously, Lisa Bloom. I wanted to get back to your mother. Did you share, did she share some of her cases with you? I, I have to feel that the fact that you lived in that household with that woman, you were thinking, <laughs> I got to be, I got to be one of hers. With that woman. Um, well, growing up, yes, we always talked about ideas. We were, I was out on picket lines uh, for striking workers, for the Equal Rights Amendment, for gay rights, you know, in the 1970s, 1980s when I was growing up. Um, she went to law school when I was in junior high, high school. So, uh, you know, I learned about what law school was like at that time. And what I learned was it looks like a terrible thing to do. It looks very hard and I don't want anything to do with it. Well, cut to five or 10 years later when I graduated college, I decided. There you are. Yeah, I guess I'll go to law school. What the heck? Like a good liberal arts major. And I ended up loving it. I went to Yale Law School and those were three of the best years of my life. It was such a fascinating Three years. I love the classes. I love my classmates. I love the reading. And I love the practice of law. I've been doing it ever since 1986. Still was, working on it. What was your first case? Do you remember? I don't know. I just thought um, about that. Uh, one of the first cases that I remember was an AIDS discrimination case. And this was the 1980s when AIDS was new in America. And I was very active with a group called Lambda Legal Defense, which is a gay rights group uh, here in New York. And we took on a case on behalf of a man who had AIDS who was discriminated against. Um, I organized a legal conference on behalf of people with AIDS in the early 1980s. It was the first one uh, in America, as far as I know. Um, I had a pregnancy discrimination case against Leona Helmsley early on in my practice. Where, you did? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, tell uh, us about that. You know, I, I th- I'm trying to remember so long ago if it was settled confidentially or not. So mm. I think I better not say any more than that. But, you know, we've had, I've had a lot of interesting cases over the years. I but you could tell us exactly what you were suing for. Well, I can say that it was a pregnancy discrimination case. In other words, somebody got fired because they got pregnant. That's correct. Oh, I want to define it. So. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> and, I, and I suspect that your children, Sam and uh, Sarah, are influenced. Let's see, one of them is at Georgetown, one of the University of Pennsylvania. Which one has gone to uh, law school? Actually, Sarah graduated from Penn, and now she's at Fordham Law School first year. So they don't have a chance either. <laughs> My son's a dancer, so we'll, I said, we need an artist in the family. Just keep dancing, uh, but we'll see. What does Sarah want to do? What kind of law does she want to practice? I don't know if she knows yet. She's still a first year, so I think she's keeping an open mind. She's not going to be in that law firm in California that you're having to run? <laughs> no? Um, she's not out on the picket line? Uh, I don't know what Come on, she's going to do. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, she's going to make her own choices in life, and you know, whatever she chooses, I'm sure it'll be the right path for her. There's a the mother. She's suing the boy, the boy scouts because a young lady was not admitted to be one of the scouts, and she's not affected by what her mother is doing. Are you kidding me? Come on. When you when you Sorry? were suing the Boy Scouts to try to get a young a young lady, you were suing for sexual discrimination, right? Is that right? It was a, yeah, I don't know what the. I think you said something about a mother, but there's a. Um, it was on behalf of a 12 year old girl who wanted to be in the Boy Scouts, and her parents said to her the same thing everybody said, which is, "Why don't you join the Girl Scouts?" So she did her research, which is what I liked about her because I always like people who do their homework. 
And she discovered that the two programs are very, very different, that most of the time her local Girl Scout troop was selling cookies and doing arts and crafts activities. That's not what she was interested in. Most of the time what the Boy Scouts were doing, because she had a twin brother who was in the Boy Scouts, was camping and leadership skills. And that was more of her cup of tea. In fact, she was better at those things than her brother was. So she said, why should I be put into a particular children's activity because of my gender? Isn't that discrimination? And when she researched it, she discovered that all over the world, scouting is co When she was 12 years old. She She did all this research when she was 12 years old. And she discovered that scouting was co-ed all over the world, with the exception of very few countries like Yemen and the U.S. But throughout the Caribbean, Europe, and Asia, Boys and Girl Scouts is just scouts now. Now That educates me. I didn't know that. That's right. So uh, she came to me with all this research. I was very proud of her. I did my own research. And I said, you know what? I think you make a very good point. And I don't believe that children should be confined to one activity or another because of their gender and be sex stereotyped. Gender discrimination. That's right. So at the time, there were two other cases against the Boy Scouts. We called them the three Gs, girls, gays, and God. There was a religious discrimination case being brought by an atheist. That was the God case. Um, There was a a gay rights case on behalf of a gay scoutmaster who had been fired. And then there was our case on behalf of Katrina Yah, the girl who wanted to join the Boy Scouts. How did you make out? Well, we went all the way up to the California Supreme Court. The other cases were heard before ours, and they decided in the the, uh, atheist case that the Boy Scouts could legally discriminate on any grounds that they chose. Because? Because they said they're a private organization. Um, which really, in my view, was inconsistent with the law at the time because a lot of groups that had been formerly considered private organizations like the Rotary Club, for example, and a lot of men's clubs had been found to not be private organizations and they had to admit women, which was happening in large numbers at that time. And you would think but if the money scouts that's can dedicated. discriminate. So yeah. that's the so they could discriminate based on race if they wanted to, which they have done in the past. They don't do currently as far as I know. They can say we don't want atheists, we don't want people who are gay, we don't want girls. And as a result, there's been a different approach with the Boy Scouts. A lot of organizations now will no longer allow the Scouts to meet on their property and public property and groups like the United Way or uh, that, that have non-discrimination policies, I think, have stopped giving to the Boy Scouts. That's so kind of an exclusionary approach, approach though. If you, if you exclude somebody, put them someplace where you can't contact them or stay in touch with them, then they're mm-hmm. going to remain being what they did before. They'll just be as, as discriminatory as well when this whole thing started. Well, I think they'll eventually come around, you know, especially on the issue of gay rights. For example, America is now moving forward and with great leaps and bounds for gay rights. You know, in the last election, there were four gay rights propositions on the ballot and they all passed. And you're smiling about that. I'm, I'm like smiling that. because it's time. It's long overdue. I think we're, you know, we're a country that values fairness and equality. And I'm, I'm embarrassed that it's taken this long for us to say that our friends and neighbors are equal to us. We're all, we're all equal in this country. Ah, but it's we take a long time to get there, almost always. <laughs> By the way, our guest this time is Lisa Bloom, who's an author, a lawyer, a civil libertarian, and you could tell a, a crusader. You, you like to talk a lot about public schools and support of teachers and everything. But as you mentioned before in a number of places, 90%, 90% of the country goes to public schools, 10% mm-hmm. goes to private schools. But the yeah. truth is... Those, that 10% controls the budgets of the 90%. Hmm. Hmm. You think of that? Well, you know, I'm a product of 
of public schools for the most part. I went to public schools all the way through high school, college at UCLA, and only in law school did I go for the first time to a private school, which was Yale. So I don't know how you would count me in that calculation. The problem is... I'm talking about the politicians who decide Yeah, the, the politicians, yeah. I understand that. You know, Washington, the, the for problem, example, there's a school called Sidwell. And I yes. think every media person Friends in Washington... School. And every politician seems to have their kids go to that school. Yeah. The public schools are in disarray and a mess. Right. Uh, the problem with education is that we've slashed and slashed and slashed year after year. It's, been come, it's, it's come to be seen as this bloated government program that's deserving of a lot of cuts. And it's terribly damaging for our children. The class sizes have grown. The schools are leaking and admitting terrible fumes, some of them. I, mean, I talk about all of this in my book about how bad the school facilities have become, how, small, how short the school days are and the school years are. We have the shortest school years in the first world, and that's why our kids compete so poorly as high school students against kids from other countries. So they need to be in school for longer periods of time. They need to have smaller classes. Everyone pretty much agrees with that. The problem is money. And well, we're constantly say, told we don't have the a, money. There's an expression, let me interrupt you, is saying, don't listen to what they say, see what they do. <laughs> and politicians always like you to listen to what they're saying and don't want you to watch what they're doing. Mm, yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, I spoke in Sacramento uh, recently about this issue and about education funding and how we have to stop slashing and, and letting the class sizes grow. And, you know, the answer is always the same, well, we don't have the money. But it's a lie because we have the money for prisons. And we now incarcerate more of our own people than any other country on earth or in human history. In California, for example, my state, we've built a new $100 million prison every year for 23 years. That's but called I'm, contracts. They usually go to people who give campaign contributions to the people who run right. their state. It's a big – you're right. It's a big profit center. At the same time, we're slashing schools. So when I was in college, for example, we spent more on higher education than on prisons. And now that paradigm has flipped. We spend more on prisons than on higher education. Our priorities have flipped. Every politician wants to be tough on crime. Nobody wants to run for office and say, I'm going to be soft on crime, right? But the biggest uh, problem with our criminal justice system nationwide is the war on drugs and the yes. huge number of people who are in for simple drug possession crimes. About a half a million people are currently incarcerated just for drug possession crimes. It's, and and it's still the people who led us down the, that path to the, one, of the big, the big, one of the biggest recessions in American history is still doing the same thing now. None of them went to jail, mm -hmm. it seems. Mm -hmm. I mean, so many of this don't do just doing what they did before. So we have a we kind of a, have a weird way of looking at what is a crime. And and also when you look at public schools, I mean you admitted to me that you're you took a look at New York public schools and you said, "Oh my god, they have 40 kids in those classes. Mm. I'm going to Trevor." Right, that's where my kids went. Yeah, that my kids went to uh public schools when we lived in California. About halfway through their childhood, we moved to New York. And I went and looked at the schools. It was a it was a painful experience because I am a great believer in public schools. I like the diversity. I think it's important for kids to go to school with all different kinds of people. Um, but I, I was disappointed in what I saw in the middle schools and high schools in New York, and so my kids went to private school. On I, the west fact, side of Manhattan. Yeah, and I was a little disappointed in that school too, to tell you the truth. You were? Why? Um, I didn't think it was challenging enough. Um, do they process kids? Is that it? Or they just make no. them feel they, you mentioned that the kids today are the swagger. I mean, it's a big joke. I went to my uh, granddaughter's um, graduation from uh, Cub Scouts or something, I guess mm -hmm. mini Scouts. You know, when you're four years old, you get a certificate saying you were there. Mm -hmm. 
So <laughs> right. no matter what you do. Certificate of appearance, right? Yes, just to show. Well, Kill. People don't compete anymore. I'm glad you asked about that because that's, uh, that's why I call the book Swagger. So Swagger is this term that all the boys know who I interviewed for the book. It's the most popular song lyric across all genres in the last decade. Swagger, Justin Bieber, the Jonas Brothers, rappers, everybody's singing about Swagger. Parents don't know a thing about it. And Swagger is this boastful, arrogant attitude. It started out as something kind of fun and light, but it's really crossed the line for many boys into a dangerous attitude of arrogance. And that attitude is harming them. And we as parents are often unwittingly assisting in that, telling them they're fabulous for everything they do, giving them those ninth place ribbons, right? But it's actually harming them because if you are all that, if you're so smart and fabulous, why do you have to work hard? Why do you have to do anything except wake up in the morning, right? And so what's more helpful is for parents to praise specific actions, especially perseverance and hard work, to say, I know that you spent an extra hour on your homework last night and you raised your grade from a C to a B. I'm very proud of that. You stuck with the team even though you wanted to quit after the first week. Good for you. If you praise effort, Rather than innate fabulousness, uh, kids do much better. The kids who are arrogant, it's really the root of the problem for a lot of boys. And a lot of parents have talked to me about this. Kids who are arrogant tend to drink more, do more drugs, get in fight more often. They're more likely to drop out of school. What is arrogant? A whole host of problems. Um, Arrogance is thinking you're better than other people. No matter whether you are or not. Right. No matter. Well, I I don't think any of us are. Right. I I think we're all God's children. We all have our strengths and weaknesses. And I advocate that parents teach humility. You know, you don't hear anything about humility anymore. It's kind of lost value. What is that? Well, you know, it goes all the way back to the Bible. Pride goes before a fall. With humility comes wisdom. And humility is the attitude that we're all equal, as I said, um, that other people are deserving of respect. Well, thank you. Lisa Bloom, that was an educational half hour. Good luck on your book and your campaign uh, to make boys as literate as girls. I hate to say that. Thank you. Can I say a couple of quick things? If people want to read my blogs, they're on avvo.com, A-V-V-O. I'm very active also on Twitter and Facebook under my name, Lisa Bloom. And there's free excerpts of my books on lisabloom.com. So. Thanks again. Everybody there. Thank you. Okay. Joanna Walper is the senior producer of our program, and Doug Doyle is our news director. Thurston Briscoe is the executive producer, and Conrad Saguinetti is our engineer. You could listen to this entire interview again on WBGO.org or on your mobile or by subscription on iTunes. Until our next conversation, I'm Alan Walper. Special thanks to Phantom Audio, a full-service production studio in New York's Flatiron District. And support for Conversations with Alan Wolper has been provided by the Blanche and Irving Laurie Foundation. 